It's 6.27 p.m. And welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sansbury. That wasn't the right noise. Okay. Oh, Oh, there are dark forces in play. Yeah, I don't know what that's all about, but that that can shut up. Um, Okay, so here we are with our... Um, with our show, it's a what we're nearly end of September already. Yes, yeah, it's been a busy September for us. Uh, nice to thank you to everybody who's listened in September. It's uh, it's become our most populous listenated month. If that's not a load of completely made up words, I think listenated. You might be struggling a bit, but yes, thank you very much uh, for listens. But um, yes, don't forget um, if you are following us live. Um, thank you very much for joining us live um, and you can also now follow us live on YouTube and on Twitter um, but don't forget to uh, follow us either on Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube uh, but also if you listen to us as a, as the podcast so just as the audio uh, please do subscribe where you listen to us so that then next time we produce an episode that automatically through the magic of Tinternet arrives on your device and you can listen to us at your at a time of your choosing um, and give us a five star rating yes please give us a five star rating um uh, i mean if you don't want to um that's fine but it'll make you sad and you don't want to see it would answer. make you sad it would no one fine. likes that it would make you very sad how's your week been old chum uh not too big not too not too bad a week um i had a, had a bit of a chill week really so um a bit of time off so um quite good Get myself sorted. Get my head together. I, d- I did. So, I got some. I got some of the promo materials um, sorted for our um, for our upcoming shows, which we can discuss in a second. But how's your week been? Oh, it's been splendid. We had an absolutely super day today, as many listeners will know. I have a guide dog, Milsey, and we met up today with uh, Martin and Sandra, a lovely couple who uh, were his puppy raisers. So they had him at seven weeks, went through all the tough stuff, and then handed him over to go on to additional training when he was 13, 14 months old. So it was lovely. We met them at Porchester Castle. So Millsy was, you know, we, we we got there and he sort of was mooching about as he does, and they would, you know, called his name and he sort of looked up and half looked, and you could see the dawning realization. It was like it's you, and then he completely lost his mind. So uh, no, it was lovely to see uh, see them and and Millsy running you know, together. It was uh, it was beautiful to behold. Excellent. Oh well, that's really nice. Nice for your your four legged pals to um to meet up with their. Um, acquaintances they're, and they're puppy parents. Ah, oh, lovely. So, so I talked about the planning that we've got. So yeah, we've actually done some, haven't we? It's it's oh, usually. I mean, I know when it comes to Sunday, we are tight as you like, but um, often that's not as a result of thorough planning in advance. <laughs> no, not not necessarily. Um, so um, yeah, we'll we'll be honest and say that there are as uh, just in case anybody couldn't tell, there are times when we are definitely um winging it a bit and flying by the seat of our pants. But nonetheless, on this occasion we've actually um we've actually got um literally a month's worth of episodes kind of planned out. Mm. So what we got next week? So next week we've got Simon Bosher coming to join us, who is the new leader of the Conservative Group. So Simon's going to come on and talk to us about his aspirations for the the city. We've got a bit of an insight into the the man himself, and uh, yeah, it, it's a chance for, as always, for any of our, our followers or listeners to send in any questions in advance, and provided they're not rude, such as why a Tory scum from an was from an Angela woman, wasn't it? A Rayner. Um, We'll we'll pose those questions to um to Simon. Indeed, I, I don't think she follows the show. To be fair, um, no. So, no, but yeah. her boss uh, wouldn't use that language. I, indeed, as he, as he was at pains to say on um, Andrew Andrew Mar. I nearly said Andrew Mayer. Um, yeah. So then the following week, October the tenth, um, it's been conference season. Just in case anybody hadn't noticed, um, with two of them being in person and one of them um, being a virtual affair. Um, so we we've invited we're inviting on um, a representative, so a member from one of the three major political parties, to come on and tell us what their top three things they'd want voters to know 
uh, about their party conference. Um, and at the end of that, we're also then going to invite our listeners. Um, we're going to take a poll with our listeners to see whether actually that's changed, that whether that's moved the cephalogical dial at all. That's, that's thorough. I know. That might even be the right word. Um, uh, and then October the 17th, we're looking for uh, contributions about, um, it's a bit of a current topic, about shortages of goods or staff. So if you either work in a particular industry or whether you're a business owner or um, you know some, any, anybody with any sort of connection that's got something to say about that, if you've got a comment that you'd like us to share on the show or indeed if you'd like to come on to, to speak about that, we've had a, um, we've had a couple of um, good offers from people um, that we've reached out to in some of our uh, political home pages, so on um, the, um, on Pompey Politics and on uh, South Coast uh, Politics and everything else, those lovely Facebook groups of polite discourse, um, we've had a couple of offers there, which we'll be um, which we'll be uh, contacting and back and taking up on. But yeah, if you've got anything more that you'd like to say on those subjects, um, then please please do get in touch either by emailing us Pompey Politics podcast at gmail.com or contact us through our Facebook group. Um, but it, we did chuckle that. Um, uh, at the outset, we, despite actually reaching out originally, we had a shortage of people to talk about shortages. Indeed. And and yes, we will continue to push that one. Then on the 24th, the decision on Aquint mm-hmm. and the power cable, let's dig a big trough through the centre of Portsmouth. Um, that decision will be made. So we're going to have the... Uh, the team on from Stalpak Quint, and we've put some other some other invites out to local notaries to uh, to come on and discuss the result of that, which leads us on to Halloween. Ooh, spooky! Isn't it? Well, the thirty first of October will indeed be our hundredth broadcast. Yes, so I don't know what we should do for that. I'll just invite everybody on who's been on before, and we'll just have a massive virtual party and get smashed. That could work. Or we could just try and contact some of the people that have been on before and allow them to provide us with an update so that we're not so navel-gazing and we're having, hearing a bit more about what's happened to their campaigns or the things that yeah. they've been working on. So that, that would can, probably... We could do all of that. But that doesn't rule out the gin or the cake. So, <laughs> so um, that's what we've got coming up. But what have we got today, Ian? So the new Theatre Royal, um, most folk in, in Portsmouth will be aware of it. It's sat there nestled in just off of Guildhall Square, has been there for an awfully long time. And it was announced a couple of weeks ago, I think, that the uh, PCC had effectively purchased the new Theatre Royal, um, where it was really properly struggling um, post-pandemic. So today we've got an old friend of the show, Steve Pitt. I mean, he's not old. He's you know perfectly mature um, to come on to, to talk to us about uh, about some of the mechanics behind that. And obviously it'd be a lovely chance to catch up with Steve, uh, who we haven't spoken to probably, good Lord, it's nearly six months and it? time flies. Uh, yes. So let's, let's wheel Steve in. Steve, welcome. Hello. How are you doing, old chum? if I can get the video on. Uh, yeah, I'm very well. Thank you. Nice to see you both. Thank Excellent. you, mate. So for those of you that aren't, uh, for the, those of our listeners and watchers that don't know you, Steve, could you introduce yourself and what your connection is with the new Theatre Royal? So uh, I'm just taking you off uh, my phone because I was watching you before I joined the meeting. Um, I, I used to be the Deputy Leader of Portsmouth Sea Council uh, and the Cabinet Member for Culture, Leisure and Economic Development. Uh, I am no longer in that position. Uh, but my connection with the new Theatre Royal goes back to the 1980s uh, when I used to help out uh, with the uh, resident theatre company that were in there at the time, uh, the Apollo Theatre Company. I used to help out with productions and stuff in there and have uh, taken an active interest in the theatre uh, and its uh, operation ever since. Perfect. So how, how are you finding life post-council? Well, um I've got a better skin tone than either of you two, which probably attests to the amount of time I've spent sunning myself this summer, walking the dog endlessly, uh, sitting in the garden reading books, uh, still helping out the local Lib Dem party uh, some of the time, but certainly enjoying a break. It had been a harrowing time uh, being deputy leader of a council during a pandemic. I cannot recommend it at all. 
uh it was a very challenging uh experience and uh, i've definitely been enjoying the rest so i've been having a nice relaxing summer guys yeah i think irrespective of politics i think uh most most people who know any of the mechanics recognize you put in a an incredible shift during the pandemics on behalf of all portsmouth residents steve just want to say thanks for that thank you very much Ian. so having said that you've enjoyed the rest is it too early to ask you whether you're considering standing again uh, I am considering. I haven't made any decisions as yet. Okay. Well, we'll we'll keep our ears peeled. Um, maybe we'll do you'll, it for that exclu- you, exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. You'll let us know first, won't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, maybe tell the local party first. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, okay. So, um, just to give us a back, bit of background on the new theatre royal, I, I've done some research. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read out some notes. So, um, okay. Here we go. Right, so the New Theatre Royal represents 150 years of culture and creativity in the heart of Portsmouth. Um, n- um, 19th and, cent- and 20th century star uh, Sandra Bernhardt literally left her mark by signing uh, one of the walls in, in one of the dressing rooms. Um, and other notable performers, notable performers over the years have included Max Miller, Frankie Howard, Laurel and Hardy, with Hardy holding his birthday in the theatre in 1954, uh, Morecambe and Wise, Billy Cotton and Max Bygraves. The new theatre royal opened in 1856 uh, with a play, A New Way to Pay Old Debts. We might call that kind of a hint of, <laughs> a hint of irony, considering um, the current times uh, by uh, Philip Massinger. And in 1882, John Waters Borton bought the building, demolished it um, and had it rebuilt in the design by architect Charles John Phipps. Um, and then going on to enlist Frank Matcham to remodel the interior in, the n- in 1900. Uh, it became a cinema, as lots of theatres did in 1932, before converting back to a live venue in 1948. Um, was used notably in the 1971 Ken Russell film The Boyfriend, starring Twiggy, Glenda Jackson and Barbara Windsor. So quite the, quite the litany of stars that have, that have trod those boards. Um, 1960, it was turned into a bingo and wrestling hall. Um, I mean, a wrestling hall might be something more appropriate to the council chamber, we don't know. Um, then 1968, uh, the planned demolition was prevented when the Theatre Royal Society formed and managed to get the theatre listed as a building of historical importance. Um, but sadly, in 1972, children playing with fireworks uh, managed to set fire to the building, but by chance that fire caused the fire curtain to come down. Um, that actually um, contained the damage to the backstage areas, so the stage... Uh, the fly tower and technical block was severely damaged, but that actually that act, that chance um, meant that the auditorium was saved. Um, the auditorium itself was saved, although sadly, further van- subsequent vandalism did um, did damage the interior significantly. Um, the Theatre Royal Society formed a relationship with Portsmouth University, and over the years and decades of of carried out a slow and painstaking work restoring the or- ornate interior. Uh, improvements in the late 80s and mid 90s created a thrust stage and installed a sound and lighting room conservatory cafe and renovated the dress circle bar it was somewhere in that period that i actually performed at the theater royal but that, we won't talk about that um in 2004 um, the theater closed for further improvements to the stage uh, an installation of heating and a lighting rig and in 2015 after being closed for a further thir- three years saw the theater reopen with improved wheelchair access increased capacity and the theater now professed a 10 meter deep stage with a 15-piece orchestra pit technical workshops green room and new dressing facilities uh, as well as the creation of the Mingella studio space complementing facilities on the main stage so in spring this year, Portsmouth City Council agreed to purchase the 650-seat venue for £700,000 and lease the building back to the Theatre Royal Society for a peppercorn rent. Phew, have I left anything out? Well, yes, but <laughs> it's, it's been there for over 100 years. So if you hadn't, we'd be here all night. Yeah. Thank you and good night. I yeah. did have to abridge some things, but, you know, it, I, if there was anything notable, um, that's my mission by um, by edit for comments, you know, for, for sanity and to stop people falling asleep. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's certainly been there quite a while um, and had many lives, as they say, um, and, and been through lots. Um, so... Ian, was the, was the next question yours? I can take it. Yeah. So I guess the first question which would naturally spring to mind is, is you know, £700,000 purchase price. Um, is this really a good use of the taxpayer's money? Interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about uh, the types of amounts of money that do get spent on things, there's always question marks when money's invested in culture. 
Mm. Um, and that's something I'm really used to. I mean, I don't know if you guys know or not, but before I was a councillor, I actually chaired the city's culture partnership and led the the partners for about seven years before that. Um, and uh, before that, I was on the cultural consortium, which was chaired by uh, a reasonably well-known local figure by Stephen Morgan. Uh, and I eventually succeeded him as chair of that uh, body. So it goes back a long way. And there's always um, questions over investing in cultural facilities uh, and historic buildings. Um, and it is a bit of a Marmite subject. I mean, if you go back, have a think about the last council year, there was a huge debate over whether or not the old records office next to the city museum should be saved, for example. Mm. Uh, and there were, you know, those that said save it at all costs and others that said, no, it's reached the end of any practical, you know, life cycle that it might have had and it needs to go. So it's, it does divide people, but culture, it's, it's the fabric of who we are. I, I often describe culture as all the things in life that you don't have to do. So, um, you know, you have to go and get go to work provide for yourself in the vast majority of cases um you have to you know do all sorts of chores you have to look after your house and repair it etc those are the sorts of things that you have to do but culture is everything else mm. and everything else embraces everything from sport to, and crafts through to you know acting and live music and so the answer is yes it is a good use of public money because it's going to protect that building as an asset for the people of portsmouth for the next hundred years, hopefully, and, and beyond, and ensure that a really deprived community in, in the heart of the city, in Charles Dickens Ward, has the opportunity to uh, hopefully uh, go on to engage more strongly with that building in future. That certainly was the council's aspiration when I made the decision that we should go ahead with the purchase and recommended that to the cabinet, who then agreed with me, and that was before the May election when I was still in the, in the position to do so. So I think it's an, it is a good use of public money, and the alternative, of course, would be to lose that building as an asset for the people of Portsmouth and risk it being converted into, I don't know, a pub or a nightclub. People will remember 20 years ago when the King's Theatre was going to be taken over and turned into a Weatherspoons. Absolute sacrilege, in my view. Uh, should never be allowed to happen. Uh, and um, so I think it was. it is a sensible and correct decision because if councils are not there to look after the resources of a city and nurture its historic and cultural assets, then what on earth are they for? Um, you know, we are custodians of those, of those buildings. And there was a bit of an anomaly here that the building had not been owned by the council historically, whereas, of course, the Guildhall and the Kings have been. Yeah, so to that point, Steve, is it fair to say that the, the, the 700k, it was branded as an investment? Um, and whilst it might be a cultural investment, from a financial standpoint, it, it, that 700k is more of a gift than an investment. The council's never going to see that money back, is it? Um, the, no, there's no intention of, of recovery. It's not, it's not a commercial investment like the property portfolio and you know other things were. It's not intended to be, but yeah. it is an investment. And I would say it's, not, it's absolutely not a gift. It's definitely an investment uh, in the cultural fabric of this city for the people of Portsmouth. So the people of Portsmouth, the money has been used to invest in a building that is crucial to the cultural fabric of the city, and it's protected it. So... It, it's not a gift um, because you can't gift the people of Portsmouth something that they bought with their own money, uh, but it most definitely is an investment. So at the moment, is, there's, a, there's an organisation that runs the, uh, the new Theatre Royal. Um, what, what does this money enable them to do that they, they weren't going to be able to do without it? So it's a very simple answer to that, Ian, survive. Um, it's a matter of public record that the new Theatre Royal, um, because it was... Um, I think struggling's probably an overstatement, but it's it's probably uh, okay to say that it was struggling to some extent before the pandemic, as you know, yep. many many cultural venues are were and are, um, and therefore, if the sale hadn't gone through as an asset owned by the trust, if the trust was going to uh, resolve its financial position, that would have involved having to sell its asset to meet its creditors, and mm. that would have been absolute madness, as I said. You know, somebody then steps in and buys it as a nightclub or turns it into something else. So, um, you know, protecting it as a theatre, this was the only way to do it. And, and I guess it might be a provocative question, Steve, but but are we certain that, that, that we're not at that point where we're, we're trying to keep blockbusters and Woolworth alive? You know, this is a venue that perhaps 
presents a, a form of media and entertainment that that there just isn't the demand to to to, to make it a viable ongoing concern, and we're 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 almost propping up a worthy cause um, out of sort of nostalgia and and sentiment. Well, the, the council's not propping up a worthy cause because the trust is still responsible for operating the building, and e- even if the trust ceased to exist, then there would be an opportunity to recruit a new trust and, and start again. So the council's not actually subsidising this at, in order to keep it going in that way. It's acquired mm. the freehold of the building, and that's a straightforward and very simple transaction. The council's bought the new Theatre Royal. It hasn't bought the business of the new Theatre Royal, and the council's not going to pretend that it's going to run a cultural business. Is there a demand for the business? Yes, um, because the new Theatre Royal does attract audiences Mm. um does it struggle with the type of shows it was trying to put on pre-pandemic yes to some extent it does uh or it has but that's we know because i commissioned a couple of independent reports when i was cabinet member to say uh, to ask the very this very question Ian. actually is there a viable future Mm. for the new theater royal and the leading experts in the land who were trusted by the arts council and the theaters trust etc to look at these things in depth came back and said yes there definitely is so it's given them an opportunity to refocus, look at what they're there to deliver, uh, and hopefully move forward with that. But that's not the business of Portsmouth City Council. That's the business of the New Theatre Royal Trust, albeit that they do still have a small revenue grant from the council, and they are required to report back on the use of that money uh, in furthering their charitable objectives on a regular basis. Perfect. So just one last question with the... You know, because people will ask the question, which is, you know, it, it felt like, you know, cash that Portsmouth City Council found 700k down the back of the sofa. So where, where did the money come from for this? Uh, I can't, I, to being frank, I can't give you an honest answer because uh, I wasn't there at the point when the purchase went through. I right. would suspect uh, that the council has used its corporate contingency to do it. Um, but it may have done it another way. And I, I, I'm honestly not cited on that at the moment. The decision to go ahead with the, per- the purchase was made. Um, what the director of finance has decided to do in terms of uh, how that money was going to be resourced, I'm not sure. Um, but undoubtedly, there'll be a report to the Culture and Leisure and Economic Development Committee shortly, and that will reveal all, as it were. That will tell us where it came from. Cheers. Okay, so... If, I, th- I think kind of the next question that we were going to ask you've, you've kind of really covered it which was kind of how does that stack you've kind of explained that this isn't the st- in the in the way that the council's got a property portfolio that is about retail um and there's there's you know there's much um disquiet made about the sorts of things that councils either should or could be investing in and indeed in which parts of the country um or indeed you know investing in in different retail properties or in or in you know um you know energy companies etc cetera, etc cetera, all those sorts of things there's there's much political debate and discourse about that but from a point of view of those things are designed to produce a financial return uh, am i hearing you right in saying that you know this isn't this isn't designed to deliver something to a bottom line on a spreadsheet this is designed to actually keep um allow something to stay alive that's a that's a vital part of the city's culture yeah i think this goes actually to the core of uh, culturally led regeneration in in its essence really um in as much as people don't often understand that the fringe benefits of investing in culture to other businesses for example are huge the benefits of investing in culture for the uh, health and well-being mental health and well-being of a local community are huge uh, I know Ian's a regular at the, the Wedgwood Rooms, goes there whenever he can. Uh, I'm sure, Ian, you would say that your health and well-being are improved by your visits to the Wedgwood Rooms. Um, it, it's the nature of engaging in culture. Um, but it's also got a role to play around um, regeneration. If you look at town centres and city centres across the country that are all being reimagined at the moment, then none of them trying to reimagine themselves as wholly retail centres. What they're doing is they're looking at a cultural mix and a housing mix because they've all got housing targets to hit that have been set by the government. Um, But also, our city centres over the last 100 years morphed into something that was unsustainable. 
We all know that now. They became identical high streets with the national chains dominating, taking over large units that were ultimately going to be unsustainable as rates and rents rose. Um, people move to online. They're able to source those goods easily through the internet. They don't need to, to pay the visits. The, stocks, the shops don't need to carry the same stock levels. They don't need the same floor footprints. So if you're going to move beyond that, what are you going to have instead? Mm. And the answer to that is in order to get that footfall back into the city centres, in order to make sure that what retail survives can thrive. And I would like, and I've always said this, to see far more independent shops on our high streets. And I believe that is possible and viable. And it's happened elsewhere. I've just come back from a week in Eastbourne. Um, and there's a little area called Little Chelsea where we stayed. And it's absolutely full of independent outlets. There's hardly a chain shop there. So it can be done. Look at Albert Road, loads of independent units down there. Look at the We Create market we did at Debenhams. Mm. Hundreds of local traders and creators in there and queues around the block to go and buy their wares. So we're in that transition period. But what's absolutely for definite is that high streets and city centres that have cultural assets in the heart of them will have a greater opportunity to thrive and survive going forward. Because if they're going to have restaurants around them, that increases the footfall to those restaurants. The restaurants employ staff, so it creates local employment. It creates that sense of well-being. It creates a sense of energy. What we've got at the moment is a rather dead commercial road precinct that goes to sleep at six o'clock in the evening um, and is a bit of a no-go area. So having something like the New Theatre Royal and the Guild Hall and possibly other cultural assets developed in the heart of the city brings in that crucial footfall. When you then throw in a housing mix and have more people living in the city centre, then you've got more people to use those shops and enjoy those assets. And you actually reinvigorate a community. And I know this because if you go back to my origins in the city through my great-grandparents, they owned a shop in Edinburgh Road. Their bus is still there on the wall. Uh, they're locally listed, I'm pleased to say, so nobody's going to knock them down, hopefully, in the near future. And they had a uh, flat above the shop. And all mm. the local shops had flats above the shops. And either the owners of the shops or their staff lived there. People lived in city centres. When we went through to the sort of precinct age, everybody moved out. And that, that is ultimately what's fueled this decline in the high street because there's no local footfall. And high streets is a destination. Everybody knows it's a pain. You've got to get in the car, drive there, et cetera, when you can order online. So how mm. do we move beyond that? What we do is we reinvigorate the cultural assets, look to put in new ones and create a better mix in our city centres. New Theatre Royal can be a key part of that, as can the Kings in uh, Albert Road and our own Guild, Guild Hall as well. Yeah, and that leads me on to the next question, Steve. Obviously, we've got the Guild Hall at 2,000 seats. You've got the Kings potentially can have up to 600. Um, and you've Kings got... 1,200-ish. Is it 1,200? Yeah. I did. Their website needs updating. Um, and and so you've got the Theatre Royal at about 650. Yeah. Um, I guess with the council having stakes in all three of those now, um, you know, I guess the question is, do do we have enough cultural activities or enough demand to maintain all three? And I guess my supplementary part to that, and you mentioned my, you know, I'm a big, huge fan of the Wedgwood Rooms, it, it, that, that appears to be the sort of next major size venue. And obviously that the, there's got to be some kind of internal competition potentially. You know, is the Wedgwood Rooms now disadvantaged by being the only independent player in the city or the only major independent player in the city i think the wedgwood rooms over the last 18 months has actually come into its own in a way that i've long wanted to see uh the work that jeff's done there through the pandemic with his team uh they've just re it's all been refurbished um they've they've you know they've put a lot of time and effort in through mm. a very difficult time to to make it survive but actually if you look at the the footprint of those different venues and let's include the wedge because i think you're right we should that wedge is 400 but and with a hundred uh, capacity feeder space, you've got the new theatre royal at round about six fifty. That's ev that's pretty packed to get every seat in the house sold, but they mm. can just about do it. Um, Fifteen hundred if you open the gallery at the uh, King's Theatre, but reasonably with the upper circle, they use you know about twelve hundred seats on a regular basis, and then the Guildhall at you know dub uh, double that. When an act comes to a city when they're new and they're getting going and they're establishing themselves, they will go to right at a micro level they'll go to the edge of the wedge in the way that they used to come to the cellars when i when i had that as, as a venue myself and you know we were 140 capacity um but then they want to come back and their mm. profile's grown so 
some bands go from zero to hero in minutes. You know, we had Mumford and Sons play at the Cellars. The next time they played Portsmouth, they played the Guildhall. But lots yep. of bands actually evolve over time and grow their audience. So you need those different size spaces for them to grow into in the same way that you do with comedians. The Wedge Comedy Club, longest running independent comedy club in the city. Uh, the Cellars had a comedy club as well. If you look at all the artists that played the Cellars and the Wedge over a sort of period from mid 2000s they're all the people that are now selling out Wembley mm. uh, you know people like Mickey Flanagan did, did a, a, an open spot on my first ever comedy club night Jimmy Carr played at the cellars um, you know there, there's some massive names have played the Wedgwood Dreams over the years on the comedy circuit and now gone on and they're playing those those bigger venues so they but they don't comedians very often don't grow that quickly it takes time they need to get the tv work they do panel shows they, they build up so you do need those development spaces and also com on the other flip side of that people don't maintain those big audiences often uh, forever so they come back down in scale so you know we used to have people at the cellars who once would have played the guild hall um, yeah. and they come back down to play our space and you know the, the the wedge does that now i think ash played the wedge last week at one time they'd have been a guild hall size act so yeah i, I saw the levelers at the wedge in february yeah there you go so, so and probably well i can remember them playing the guild hall probably 10 15 years ago so no, it, I, things, I, it was 91 steve was it that long ago? <laughs> okay so um things do go in cycles and therefore you do need the different size spaces and cities that don't have those dis those different size spaces are disadvantaged so that's why, I mean, it was a dramatic decision to <coughs> close the plaza suite at the pyramids. We had to because it was draining money like it's gone out of fashion. Um, but the city arguably, you know, needs that intermediary size space as well in, bet in between uh, the new theatre hall and the Kings. And, you know, will we, will we get that back? I'd, I'd like to think one day we will. Um, so, no, I don't think it, it's got no place and it's squeezed out by the others. I think it, it needs... Clever management and intelligent management, but it can definitely find its niche. And there are plenty of shows that are too small to go into the Kings to, to put in the kind of numbers that they would want to see. And uh, similarly for the Guildhall, and it, it, it could play a major role for that. There's also, <coughs> we have to remember, a really, really successful community theatre scene in Portsmouth. Mm. Societies like CADS, um, South Downs, um Portsmouth uh, players etc you know their audiences are changing and evolving over time and they are capable of drawing hundreds of people so at the moment they players and South Down tend to, to use the Kings will they continue to use the Kings will the York Kings audiences evolve and change uh, perhaps they you know may decide that they'd be more comfortable in the new theatre royal cads has successfully put on a number of shows at the new theatre royal over the years as well i've seen some very good productions that they've put on so there's always these this need for different size spaces and i think the new theatre royal still needs to do a lot of work to find its niche and where it's going to be but it's absolutely achievable as the experts that we brought in told us that it was super excellent so i mean so it and, and that gives us a good impression about how how I mean obviously recent times is um isn't really kind of like a representative example is it and we'll, we'll touch on that in, in a minute but it, from a point of view of it, its location obviously being near the Guild Hall kind of you can kind of see that the, but at the moment otherwise it's it's pretty much surrounded by nightclubs isn't it how do, how does that you know from a I don't know is that a street scene from a kind of a you know theming of the area how does that kind of set the environment that for theatre going and, and stuff is that does it fit? it is it a challenge you're you're quite right um i can remember way back um goodness knows probably well my year guesses have been miles out tonight <laughs> thanks to ian's encyclopedic knowledges of the levelers performances in portsmouth yes uh, is a specialized subject on mastermind um but certainly going back 15 to 20 years ago I can remember standing outside the new Theatre Royal having just locked up after a show and thinking, oh, my God, I'm walking into Beirut. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, at midnight on a, on a Saturday. But it's, yeah. it's, it's certainly not like that anymore. It's, it still obviously attracts a younger crowd down there. Um, but, and it's, you know, it's a lively atmosphere. But it has changed over the years. I mean, I, I used to be on something called the Evening and Late Night Economy Partnership. Uh, which probably folded because his name was too long uh, back about 13 years ago. Uh, and it was chaired by Chief Inspector Andy Fulton, I think his name was. Um, 
and that was all about at the time looking at the crisis in Guildhall Walk and all the regular disturbances down there and the amount of violent incidences and it's gone you know it's changed significantly from that and again things do evolve and change over time let's not pretend that um back in Victorian times and Edwardian times that uh, Guildhall Walk was some uh you know paragon of virtue for the people of Portsmouth it was uh, crawling with prostitutes and drunks so um, I I think the theatre's very well placed to survive and and continue to exist safely within that environment uh, which is changing all the time in a positive way I think so I, th- I think the euphemism about working the Guildhall steps is... Uh, yes, exactly. Yes, <laughs> ex- ex- exactly. Yeah. So uh, it w- it weren't posh. Yes. No, 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 never has been, has it? So so I, I guess the other question, Steve, in terms of that sort of post-COVID and, and uh, you know, you've, you've been involved with the, you know, with sort of entertainment in... in is it too soon to know whether, you know... The, the theatres and venues are going to bounce back from COVID is, do you get a sense that there is an appetite for people to get out and about again? Yes. And actually I'm quite surprised. I'm personally surprised at how strongly the audiences are returning. Um, you know, the, the way the Guildhall um, put out a tweet the other day, Andy Graves is the chief exec. They put out a tweet saying how fabulous it was to see a full house for elbow, you know, so People are coming out. Um, there's been a couple of major comedy shows in the city over the last month or so that have been sold out. Um, so people are going back to, to live theatre. The, the deprivation of, of taking it away, you know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, the old Joni Mitchell Big Yellow Taxi song. Um, I think people have realised just how much they've missed that interaction the, and the opportunity to laugh with other people. You know, experiencing yep. live comedy is a completely different thing than sitting at home watching Michael McIntyre bouncing around the stage on the telly. It's just, it's not the same. Um, and it's part of who we are as human beings to want that to in, a, in that social environment to to just experience joy with other people. And so I think there will certainly be elements of the audience that will be wary, and I'm one of them, um, but... I've been to a couple of things and, and, you know, gone out to see stuff. I went to a blues gig at the Guild Hall a couple of weeks ago uh, and people are coming back out. So the question will be uh, whether or not they come out in big enough numbers to overcome some of the downturn that the pandemic caused, because despite the government's trumpeting huge amounts of money through the cultural recovery fund, it wasn't enough um, and it was not necessarily targeted in the right places um so it remains to be seen how quickly the sector will recover but i'm pretty sure that it will it's been resilient in the past uh it's never had enough public sector funding uh historically uh, across the country certainly in the pro- provincial theatres um but it's it's always finds a way to survive you know that we're stubborn buggers us creatives and we don't like to give in um i'm going into rehearsals with my theatre company next week for a show that we're doing in november and yeah we're a bit worried about whether the audience will turn up or not but hey it's what we do so we're just going to get back out there and keep doing it it's that mentality of build it and they will come yeah yeah indeed so i guess then the the natural kind of question to ask is so it's obviously something that you've got lots of experience in that you're very passionate about which is to be honest why why we wanted to hear what you had to say uh, about the subject um, so, what would you say is the is the future for for culture in Portsmouth? And if it's you and if um, sorry to interrupt, and if if right. um, if if um, if money and politics weren't barriers, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's always a dangerous question to ask someone. What what would be your what would be your you know, what would be your magic you know your um, your silver bullet? What would what would what would be the things that you'd want to do? On the first part of that, um, I think that what I tried to do, uh, happily with the backing of my cabinet colleagues while I was um, the cabinet member, was to show just how important it is to invest um, Mm. and to right some of the um, previous underinvestment in certain bits, you know, things like... I was horrified that world leaders from across the globe were coming to Portsmouth for D-Day 75 and Southie Castle hadn't been washed for 10 years. You know, I'm very proud of the cultural assets that we have in this city and the people that operate them and and, and work so hard year in, year out to draw, draw in those audiences. You've got to remember Portsmouth draws 9 million visitors pre-COVID uh, and that was a rising number. 
So it's a massive part of our economy. More people work in cultural and creative sector in this city than work in the naval base. And I've always said the same thing. If somebody announced tomorrow that Portsmouth Naval Base was closing, full stop, all 13,000 people were being made redundant, there'd be an absolute outcry, and rightly so. But if somebody said all the people who work in culture are losing their jobs tomorrow, the vast majority of the public wouldn't wouldn't give them monkeys. Mm. And and that's wrong, because actually the jobs that the the students do get get them through university, and we want graduates to stay in Portsmouth and, and set up their own businesses and thrive here, um, sorry if you can hear Finn in the background, by the way, he's just decided to join in a barking contest with the dog up the road. Um, we've we've got the um, the power and the passion here amongst our cultural sector to be a great cultural city. I think we already are a cultural city, and I know that pretty much everyone laughs when I, when I say that, but I really genuinely believe we are. And again, the We Create Market demonstrated very clearly how creative we are as a city and how many fantastic people we've got here. We've got artists from Portsmouth uh, exhibiting at the Royal Academy again this summer. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we've had people go on and uh, be stars of the West End from this city. Uh, my friend Denise Black's moved back to Portsmouth and, you know, she's been in all sorts of uh, major TV dramas and soap operas and things over the years and is also a very successful stage actress. So we've certainly got the talent. So I think the future for Portsmouth, if Portsmouth Creates can get themselves going now post-COVID, which they'd obviously had intended to be further down the road than they are by now but like everyone else they've had to go into semi-hibernation although they did achieve some brilliant things during the pandemic with the market and the we believe art trail if they can now get going we've got huge opportunities for cultural development here we're spending 120 million pounds on the sea defenses and we don't we don't want to end up with is just a load of sort of concrete and brick um, so the enhancement around that, that the cabinet's been putting money into through the capital budget over the last couple of years, that's really a key to that. And we want our own creators to be part of making that not just sea defences, but a world class visitor attraction that people want to come to and walk along. So mm-hmm. I think the future is bright. What would I do if money was no object? Uh, I would fully refurbish the Guildhall to a modern standard starting straight away. I would do the same with the Kings. Uh, I'd do a little bit of refurbishment of the new Theatre Royals Auditorium, but it just needs a bit of a wash and brush up. It's actually in very good order. Um, I'd ensure that there was a sustainable grant pot there to make sure that places like Aspects and the Wedgwood Rooms uh, were properly supported. I'd make sure that all of our historic buildings uh, didn't have to scrabble around in the capital budget every year uh, for the bits of money to keep them going and bring them all up to a proper standard uh, and invest properly because... Not just because I'm passionate about culture, but I believe that if we made those investments and we were able to bring everything up to a really high standard, that the dividends that would pay for other local businesses and the money it will bring into this city will create a greater degree of prosperity here for the average person who lives in Portsmouth. And that always has to be part of it. That's what culturally-led regeneration means. It's not just about investing in cultural assets for the sake of it. It's Mm. about using them as platforms to grow the local economy. Thank you. So, Uh, Oh, sorry, go on, Ian. No, I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? You know, when we talk about politics and culture, and again, I'll probably get the details wrong, but I I remember reading something uh, post-war with Winston Churchill when they talked about cutting the cultural budget. and, And I think his response was, well, if we do that, why did we bother to win the war? Yep. And you're right, it was Churchill. Uh, and he was right. So what, why do you... Do you what, I mean, I, picking at your point of what you say, that, you know, if, if the government announced overnight that they were going to be shutting the, the naval base versus if there was something that was happening that said that basically all the, the cultural and leisure um, industry in the city was shutting, what, why, why do you think there's a an underappreciation if i can use that phrase of culture and uh, and leisure what do you do you th- what do you think there's anything particular behind that i don't think it's unique to portsmouth mm. uh, i think it's you know it's a bit of a national problem uh, and sorry ian but i am going to criticize your party of choice here i remember reading their 2017 election manifesto and the only reference to culture in it was about heritage and it referred to stonehenge um, and <laughs> I think we've moved on a bit since then. Um, but there, you know, no, yeah, done, that, that appeals to our core voter group, Steve. <laughs> come on, calm down. 
<laughs> what a brilliant admission. Um, but the uh, you're right, you're right though. Um, but the you know, I, I think because people see it as fun, they don't understand that it's actually a huge amount of skill and time uh, and effort goes into making that fun. You know, you, to put on a play is not just a bunch of people sitting there learning some lines and trotting on stage. They go to drama school. That we, There's lots of rehearsals that go into that. Adaptations of productions to make them fit the performance space that they're in. We're, uh, making sure that things are fit for the right audience, you know, uh, and staging them in a way that, that, that suits. Uh, bands spending thousands of hours rehearsing in order to learn and get and get good at what they do. You know, you can't just... God knows, I ran a music venue that in, that entertained an awful lot of uh, emerging local bands, um, and it's no insult to them to say that you've got to listen to an awful lot of rubbish before they get good. Um, <laughs> I often used to say to them, you know, I, I know you've rehearsed the band, the band's quite tight, but did anybody think to put the singer in the monitors because he can't sing? Um, so you know, and in jest, um, but there's there's a, you know, and lots of those musicians that I work with have gone on to do great things and be very successful. But it takes time. You know, you don't mm. just develop these skills overnight in the same way that somebody going into work on the naval base doesn't become an electrician overnight or, a you know, a steel fitter. They they have to learn their trade. So but I think because the end product is seen as something that is fun to do, that people think it's, they don't take it as seriously. Um and, and that is a bit of a national problem in the UK, whereas in France and Germany, for example, huge amounts of public money goes into the arts uh, in a way that dwarfs what we spend here in the UK. And I think we've got it wrong. It's an interesting view to kind of think of it actually as a kind of manufacturing. It's you saying that that's made me think that's a kind of manufacturing and the and the years taken to acquire the skills, the venues that you need in order to in order to produce things properly um, and to d and to and to do them well. Those aren't things that happen by accident, and they aren't no. things that happen by um, overnight. Um, and it is actually a type of manufacturing. It's just that it's not a thing that you can flog on eBay. Um, do you know what I mean? It's it's not a thing that you can see. Touch. It's not tangible. No, um, but you, you know, but you can feel it. So it, mm. I, 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 yeah, I, I just find it interesting as to why. And, and I agree. I don't think it's I don't think it's um, unique to Portsmouth at all. But I just you know wonder kind of what the difference is considering actually the import as you've said that 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 part of the industry actually has on the city um it's not a oh this is a nice to have this is actually kind of a this is a fundamental part of our economy isn't it really it is and the weird thing is that i think people do understand that about theater land in london they know that it's a multi-million a multi-billion pound business they understand that because it's all concentrated in quite a small area mm. and they can see the queues and they see the sold out shows and they know that andrew lloyd webb is a multi-millionaire so you know they understand that but they don't seem to understand it in quite the same way once you go provincial and we go out into the provinces and and i think probably because the concentration's not there in quite the same way but that's what we need to achieve here is a concentration and then people ask me when i was cabinet member why I didn't push for Portsmouth to yet again try and be City of Culture. And I said, my answer to that was always the same. I want Portsmouth to bid to be the City of Culture when I know that there's going to be 2,000 people plus in Guildhall Square, all wearing T-shirts, demanding that Portsmouth is going to be City of Culture, mm. sharing at the, staring at the big screen, waiting for the announcement and cheering and going mad. Um, and we're not there yet. So it is about energizing in the local community but one of the ways you do that and which we always tried to do certainly at the cellars and the Wedgwood rooms and I know that you know that the theatres do in different ways as well is engage with communities mm. you know theatre schools are really important engaging young people and making them understand that actually yes there are there are opportunities out there to, to go and uh, you know learn these skills and develop careers out of it but it's not about being stars I used to go into the local music colleges and do uh, sort of lectures and stuff when I was a venue operator and I always used to say to them you know who wants to be famous and obviously all, all little hands go up yeah I want to be famous and I say well right, okay well statistically none of you will be famous <laughs> you just let the penny drop and it, it's not going to happen you know it might happen but it will be a fluke because it's not you know the the chances of it actually happening are so remote but there are loads of careers out there for you if you get good at what you do as musicians 
So if you're a first-class player, then there's session work and you can go and play for, you know, those people who are famous and have your name on a recorded on an album to say that you play trumpet or drums or whatever on that artist's album. You can teach uh, the instrument. Uh, you could go into schools and do more general music teaching. Uh, you can use the skills that you've learned and the disciplines that you've learned in other ways. Uh, and that's the same for people who are uh, generally creative, for artists and ceramicists, etc. Uh, and it's certainly true of performers. You know, I learned uh, some some of my performing skills through uh, doing debating societies back in the 1980s. And then um, I ended up directing my first play because the... Um, the uh, my head of theatre who I'd followed to the new theatre royal when I left uh, school said to me I don't like this play that we're going to do so you'll have to direct it um so I said what I don't know what I'm doing he said you'll be fine I'll I'll sit on your shoulder and keep an eye on what's going on and show you the ropes along the way and I've directed about now I think about 60 plus productions since then so you know the skills are there to be to be taken and used and they give you other skills in life as well you know public speaking sitting here chatting to you two is a skill that I've learned from being involved with theatre and uh, running venues and standing behind a bar in pubs and all sorts of things so we're all the product of our, lo- our life experiences and there's no better life experience than learning stuff through creativity. I think that's fantastic Steve it's, it is that element of and I, I think when we look at you know when we look at Portsmouth as a whole we we have got so many assets and you know to, to have you know we've 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 listed four venues there's you know there's the ground we do have you know a very rich history of of performance and like you say for a for a city that is is not is not fundamentally a wealthy city the fact that we we maintain as many creative venues as we do i think is is a testament to the people of portsmouth that, that are prepared to engage with that yeah, and I think you almost mentioned it there in Groundlings. Yeah, uh, you know another key part of that jigsaw puzzle, particularly around the youth engagement that they do, and the theatre school that they run, and they put on some pretty good productions as well um, that draw good audiences. I know that their production of a Christmas Carol that they wanted to put on last Christmas was actually sold out at the point mm. that everything closed down again. Uh, and they're another key piece of that jigsaw puzzle because whilst the wedge has got the edge of the wedge, it's not really ideal for theatre for small scale theatre. But the groundlings most definitely is, and people need to cut their teeth. It's it's the same as you know that a lot of focus has gone on the last few years about the value and talk about it during the pandemic as well, quite rightly about the value of the UK music industry and the value of theatre land, etc. Those people have to learn somewhere. They don't just suddenly, you know, they don't go and do a drama degree and then end up in the West End. Mm. If, the, if the provincial theatres and the smaller venues didn't exist, they can't learn their craft. And that's just as true for theatre as it is for the music industry. And it's absolutely crucial that we have those places to nurture those kids and give them those soft skills, because actually those soft skills make them employable in a whole host of other ways as well. And one of the things that I learned when I was doing the economic development element of my role was that what the major employers in the city were often saying to me is we're getting people come to us who've got the qualification but they mm. haven't got the life experience and the the more rounded soft skills that we want from people to be good communicators to be able to think on their feet you know those sort of things they they can learn through doing you know a culture and creativity as well and you know creative industries for example are the the cutting edge that's creating the technology for the naval base to to move to into AI and, and digital tech. You know, uh, AI is an intrinsic part of creative and cultural skills at the university. So it's not just about the fun stuff. It's also about the high-end technical businesses, which this country is absolutely going to need if it's going to survive and thrive on its own post-Brexit. And I think you touched on it with the, and it, it's an interesting parallel to draw, isn't it? You talked about the high street, you know, and the fact that now with just two taps, you know, you can you can get the uh, you can get the product ordered. I guess the real challenge to to live theatre and live performances is the commodification of entertainment that says, you know, I watch the Netflix drama on my favourite band and their tour at the time that I choose to want to watch it. It's almost that kind of, you know, we we are creating a generation who believe that all entertainment should be on demand at a time that suits. So I think that's where that, that real challenge is to draw people out of their house, to come to, you know, a, a live performance and everything, the benefits that all of that brings. But well, we know that they will 
because we've just had Victorious with, you know, I don't know, 50,000 people a day going to it. So that people want to experience things live still. But you're right. The challenge will be, and it's why that community engagement is so important and why the educational aspects of this are so important in getting those kids to the theatre and to music venues at a young age. Mm. Because that if they their natural inclination is to engage digitally. You have to show them that actually the enjoyment and the experience of going to a live event, whether that's comedy, music, theatre, whatever it is, is so significantly better that it's fine to, you know, I spent time during lockdowns as well, watching podcasts and uh, looking at videos and stuff, but it's not the same as being in a room and actually listening to it. And certainly with where live music's concerned, some of the nuances uh, in a song performed live and, and the different ways it's performed live as well. It's never going to be the same each time. Uh, and that's also part of the experience. So, but it's important that we get that message across to the kids before they just get gl- their heads glued to their laptop or their phone. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be good to see that um, people, regardless of age, um, to be honest, but regardless of their backgrounds, that they can either be in or be consumers of this sort of, you know, of live entertainment and that, that in and of it and I think I think you're right there is a demand as much as we're used to this very convenient lifestyle this very convenient press a button and I, I can watch what I want we seem to have temporarily lost Ian lost Ian <laughs> um, you won't send anything horrible about the Conservatives no, um, no, no. so um, do you want me to now there, there were so many yet. opportunities to do so <laughs> um, so you, yeah I just I, I, the thought just keeps hit, just keeps striking me as you if you say about you need these you need a stepping stone of these sorts of different venues and these different um, situations so that you know he's, he's lost his internet um, so um, maybe one of his sons has trying to download it um, or play something online. Um, yeah. Oh, the, the irony! <laughs> yeah, the the, the irony um, would be that you know if we were talking about football, we'd be talk we'd be thinking of. Um, yeah, absolutely. You need to start with grassroots. You need to start, you know, the you know the the weekly games. You know, the the after school clubs. The you know the weekend games. You know the you know the under sixteen leagues or whatever. I'm talking about things that I know nothing about because it was never my thing. But if you were if if so if that was someone's aptitude and they um you don't you don't suddenly rock up one day and be able to play at Wembley, um and kick a ball at Wembley. You you know someone by the time they've got to that point they've gone through years of of experience and playing and coaching to get them to a point where they're actually able to make that a successful career. But there are still thousands, many, many, many thousands of people that do it for fun Mm. rather, you know, and, and, and that in and of itself is, I guess I'm circling back to kind of Churchill's point, which is that these things might not be good on a, you know, might not initially look good on a, on the bottom of a spreadsheet, even though actually your case says that actually there are, there are kind of like a growing medium for, for other parts of growth, but they're a fundamental part of life and what makes life worth living. No, that's, and I completely agree with you. Um, you know, that they're the, the core of who we are really. And, you know, Susie Horton and I, when, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm sure they do, but she's cabinet member for uh, children, families and education. And we worked together to bring an event into the city and supported a uh, a really great event with Darcy Bustle when she was on the Strictly panel uh, and to come to the new Theatre Royal, funnily enough, um, and to put on a show with kids. She sent them all um, videos of different dance styles and they had to pick one, learn it, do a performance of it that they filmed. And then, which is, which actually proves the point that you can link modern technology to live performance and sometimes it works so they they filmed what they'd done she picked the best ones uh to come and do a live show at the new theater royal with her and her dancers on stage and she would judge it and and pick the winners and it was a fantastic event and actually two of the schools that finished in the top three came from some of the most deprived areas in the city which for me was the very best possible outcome for it because those kids they the look on their faces and the joy that they got out of engaging in, ex- in that experience and being on stage with one of the most famous dancers in the country who was currently able to be seen at that point on Saturday night primetime on Strictly, which the kids all love. And to see boys and girls performing in that environment was absolutely fantastic. One of the high points that I had in my three years in that role. And all of the audience, of course, were their families. So these were people who wouldn't go to the theatre to go and see Shakespeare necessarily, mm. um, but they wanted to go and see their kids perform and and experience that. So 
the joy that was in the room that day was unbelievable. It was such a powerful and positive experience. And the Guildhall does dance live every year, um, which also you know, engages the local schools and gets, gives those kids the opportunities to perform. And all right, only a small number of them will go on and develop that, maybe do GCSEs in drama or go to drama college or even take part in local community theatre, etc. But they're still learning a really, really important skill, which is confidence and, and the ability to go on that stage and do that in front of an audience. That confidence level will stand them in really good stead for all sorts of other things that they may want to do with their lives and their careers. So I'm a, absolutely passionate about every single child in this city having regular ability to engage with cultural activity. Um, and, you know, our venues are a key part of that through our through our three theatres and through the Guildhall and the Wedgwood Rooms. Well, thank you, Steve. What, what a fantastic thought to, um, to to end the show on. I think I think um, I, I think you've put across, a, you know, some really, really good points there. And, and thank you so much for as, as ever, whenever whenever we've had you on. We know you you're really passionate about the detail and you really care about these things that um and why they matter and what and what they're for. So thank you so much for for um for coming on ian um i believe that you've just come back <laughs> just I've, I've returned simply to close <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to close oh. this out mate <laughs> yeah so you've been listening to the pompey politics podcast i've been ian tiny morris uh, and our guest has been oh steve pitt sorry <laughs> you're right uh, and i've been simon sandsbury Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa. Play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. Stop. See? It's easy.